preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, this week we continue our study of 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, a series of exhortations that, that Peter gives and uh, begins at chapter 2 and verse 11 and takes us all the way at least through uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. And uh, what Peter addresses for us in this section is the responsibility that we have as aliens and strangers, those who are not of this world but are still in this world but are ordained to, to live amongst a, a people uh, that we don't necessarily belong to anymore. Like we mentioned last time, we're together as believers. We have a renewed mind, a purified heart, a freed will. We share the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, NASA doesn't have to spend millions of dollars searching for extraterrestrial life. You know, they could have saved themselves a lot of money by just coming to the church. Uh, NASA actually... Uh, uh, has a major project to, to search for extraterrestrial intelligent life, known as uh, by the acronym uh, SETI, SETI, uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Uh, the project employs radio telescopes around the world to eavesdrop on thousands of target star systems in the hope of detecting radio signals of artificial origin. You know, but like I said, NASA doesn't have to attempt to find life and intelligence beyond Earth of extraterrestrial life, some kind of evidence. Uh, Because every believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is an alien life form. We're aliens and strangers in this world. Jesus says in John 15 and verse 19, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. And uh, one day, as uh, one of our new members pointed out, we'll we'll all be abducted and snatched away from this world and return with our leader to take over the planet. So uh, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 uh, it says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The Son of Man will come, will return from heaven, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. But until that time, Peter wants us to know how we're to live as aliens and strangers on the earth. And in this section of Scripture, uh, what we'll really focus on is our responsibility to an unbelieving world, uh, the responsibility to the government. Uh, to masters, to husbands and wives, and to society as a whole. And the reality that Peter recognizes is that in each of these relationships, we'll be faced with those who are disobedient to the Word of God, and those who will oppose and malign our testimony, and even seek to bring harm to those who belong to Jesus Christ. In uh, verse 12, it speaks about the unbelieving Gentiles who slander us as evildoers. In uh, verse 15 of Chapter 2, it talks about ignorant and foolish men who will speak against us. In verse 18, masters will bring us sorrow and suffering unjustly. In chapter 3, verse 1, there's husbands who are disobedient to the word and wives who can be unsubmissive. In chapter 3, verse 9, it lets us know that we will face evil 
insults in this world. And Peter wants us to to be prepared for what our responsibility is, uh, even before those who are opposing us. We don't have the option just to check out because we don't belong. You know, just because we're, we're passing through the world doesn't mean that we can check out of this world. And being an alien and a stranger is not an excuse to be indifferent or rebellious. We have a heart of compassion for the unbelieving world around us. Uh, we're seeking to win the world because of our behavior even. Uh, people looking at our behavior and, and being won over by the behavior, uh, respectful uh, behavior, excellent behavior as uh, Peter speaks about it. It's the same kind of uh, hope that uh, wives would have with unbelieving husbands that they can be won over uh, by uh, their lives even without a word. It's the same kind of hope uh, that's spoken of in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, that because of your good deeds as they observe them will glorify God in the day of visitation. We spoke about that last week. We also understand that our respectful behavior honors our King Jesus Christ. Our submission is to be for the Lord's sake, for the will of God. It finds favor with God. And we also understand that our behavior can silence the mouths of critics. In uh, verse 12, those who slander you as evildoers because of your good deeds can glorify your Father in heaven. And then down in chapter 3 and verse 16, if you want to look at that with me, in chapter 3 and verse 16, it speaks about keeping a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. Our, Our behavior can win the world. It can honor our king. It can shame the critics And uh, today we'll specifically see how that's true in our relationship to the government. How how do we live as heavenly aliens in a worldly government? And to answer that question, we'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Why don't you follow with me as I read? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, And the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you as we always do every week. Now, Father, just dependent on you for your help, Lord, as we open up your word. Father, that you would help these things to become clear to us, that you'd help us to understand what you've given to us, the word that you've revealed to us. Now, Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to enlighten our minds, to illuminate our minds, give us understanding. And now, Father, help us to be obedient to the things that we learn. Help us to approach this word with a submissive heart, a submissive attitude. Now, Father, that we would desire for these things to be true of us, Help us not to walk away from your word unchanged, Father. Help us to be transformed by the word of the living God. And Father, I pray that you'd help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Until uh, recently, uh, passages like Romans 13, uh, Titus chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2 that address the Christian's responsibility to the government uh, seem to be fairly straightforward, uh, particularly for us in the, the Western world where our religious freedoms were regarded as sacred and churches enjoy a protection uh, from the state. Uh, churches, for the most part, were uh, left alone, uh, but it's becoming increasingly clear that uh, churches are not going to be off limits uh, to government encroachment and societal pressures. Uh, many of us have been 
uh, following the, the story of our uh, brother James Coates up in Canada. Uh, because of uh, his conviction to gather together as one church rather than uh, dividing his church up into smaller segments, uh, he was out of compliance with the Alberta Public Health Act, uh, which stipulates that churches can only meet at 15% of their building capacity, and he was arrested and spent 35 days in prison for opening his church and holding services. And there have been at least two other arrests of pastors in Canada for the same violation, and also here in the, the U.S., there's places where uh, churches have been instructed not to sing, not to have communion, not to baptize, not to meet for longer than half an hour, uh, which uh, I'd probably be halfway into my introduction at that point. <laughs> churches have been instructed not to gather as a congregation for a period of time, not to meet at all, and even lawsuits have been filed against churches like Grace Community Church in Southern California for not complying with the, the county health orders. We're also living in a time when there's increasing pressure from our society uh, to recognize an individual's orientation or gender identity, uh, and gender, by gender identity, I mean what they perceive as their identity. Uh, there's actually a bill that's already passed the House that would make it illegal uh, to deny any gender-free access to restrooms, locker rooms, dressing rooms, to deny any people the, the place of their choice. And our church would be out of compliance if we denied access to our restrooms. Even if we counseled anybody biblically to consider God's role in assigning gender at birth, we could be out of compliance with that as well. And these issues have caused Christians, and I know even for myself, uh, to think more carefully about what 1 Peter 2.13 means when it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And... uh, Maybe times pass, you know, you could kind of pass through that, you know, pretty quickly and not even think about it. But, you know, honestly, a lot of us as pastors have wrestled through that in the last year. I've had many calls with uh, pastors across the region and even nationally as we've been talking about these things. But there's a few things that are important for us to recognize right up front before we, we dive in into, into this topic here. And number one, it's that earthly government is good, okay? Earthly government is good. And by that, I, I don't mean that that every government is morally good, or that any government is just as good as any other government. What I mean is that earthly government as an institution is ordained by God himself, and that is good. It's a blessing of God's common grace that we have government. A society where every man does what is right in his own eyes is a judgment on mankind, not a blessing. And you don't have to look further than the the book of, of Genesis to find out what happens when a society takes justice into its own hands. It's brutal. It's a brutal world to live in when men take justice into their own hands. In Genesis chapter 4, in verse 23, there was a a man by the name of Lamech. He was the the sixth descendant from Adam, who said to his wives, and already you have polygamy, says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. You know, almost like congratulating himself. Listen up, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. That's what it looks like to take justice into your own hands. You know, somebody wounds me, I will kill them. And it doesn't matter what the age is. I've wounded, I've killed a boy for striking me. That's the opening of the Bible. Only six removed from Adam. People taking justice into their own hands. 
The book of Judges is a, another example of taking justice into your own hands. It's a book filled with violence, with bloodshed, unimaginable wickedness at every level. And why? At least one reason why the book of Judges is filled with so many unspeakable atrocities is because there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you'll see that in Judges 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, 21, 25. There's no king in Israel. Everybody does what they want to do, what's right in their own eyes. You know, just read the, the story sometime about the, the Levite who took a concubine from Bethlehem to get an idea of the, the kinds of atrocities that took place when there was no king in Israel. So we should be thankful to God for government. Flip over to, to Romans 13 real quick. We'll probably turn here again, but Romans chapter 13. We believe that government is a, a blessing of common grace given by God to mankind and that all governing authorities exist by God's sovereign will. They bring order to society, relative peace, harmony upon humanity, and any government is better than no government. Government is a God-given restraint on evil. Look at Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1. It says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And that's, that's all the way from uh, democracies to dictatorships. That, that the, the authority that exists is established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, and speaking about the government again, this authority is a minister of God to you for good. Government is God's idea. It's established by God. Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries in their habitation. That's speaking about nations, even boundaries designed by God. The nations that exist exist because of God's determination. But that doesn't mean that earthly government recognizes God's authority or submits to God's authority. Not everything that government does is good, which leads me to my second point, that earthly government is also sinful. <laughs> earthly government is sinful. And again, we don't have to look far into humanity to find evidence of that either. The, the first one-world government decided to throw off God's rule over them. Over in uh, Genesis chapter 11, in uh, the Tower of Babel, if, if you're familiar with the story there, Genesis chapter 11, in verse 4, they said, Come! Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach up into the heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, now, who told man to be scattered abroad the face of the earth? God did. God did. Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah, his sons, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. To, to be scattered abroad, multiply and fill the earth. But man turns around and says, we're not going to do that. We're, we're going to build a tower lest we do scatter across the face of the earth. We're, we're going to do the very opposite of what God says. It was a repetition of uh, Genesis 1.28 where God commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. But the first one world government decided that it would not have this God to rule over them. You know, why spread his name when we can make a name for ourselves? So they defy his authority, 
That's exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel, the confusion of the languages, was God's judgment on a sinful world that decided to make a name for itself rather than glorify God. But it's also God's means to accomplish his purposes when he confused the languages that they would separate. And the nations are born out of this rebellious group. And the nations continue to be rebellious throughout history. We find nations like Egypt, Canaan, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all the way up until our present and even in the future day, there's going to be another one world government that will seek to throw off the fetters of God and his appointed Christ. Revelation 19 verse 19 says, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The, the, the one world government, the assembly of the nations, will again seek to overthrow God over them. It's exactly what we read about in Psalm 2 in verse 2 to 3 where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart. This is slavery. We want to be free from this. Let us tear their fetters apart. Cast their cords away from us. The world doesn't want anything to do with God's rule. And even Israel, God's chosen nation, faced judgment because of their sinfulness. You know, Moses warned the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 30 that if your heart turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will, no longer, you will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess it. And the God who cannot lie fulfilled his word exactly as he said he would because Israel did not obey and the prophets predicted that Israel, the, the northern kingdom, would be taken over by Assyria. The southern kingdom would be taken over by Babylon. They'd become a heap of ruins. The, place of, uh, the, the high places of the, the forest would overtake the temple. That's, that's the story of, of human government. But that's, that's not where the story ends. Because it's, it's not like the idea of government was a failed experiment, Okay. It's not like this is just a, you know, some kind of, a, you know, con- convenience of society. You know, like this is just a, a, a convention that we, we utilize because it just, it just helps us out. The idea of government is good, even though there are sinful people who rule over it, right? And the earthly government will one day be replaced by the heavenly government. And that's, that's what we even pray for in that, that Our Father prayer that we even sang a part of a little bit earlier. You know, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Where? On earth, just as it is in heaven. Bring the heavenly government down. Bring that heavenly kingdom down. And we look forward to that kingdom which is to come. And that's the eager expectation that we have as believers. The earthly government as we know it is only temporary. In Genesis 49, it predicts that governments will not be done away with, but we're going to have a new ruler In uh, Genesis 49 and verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, a reference to Jesus Christ. Another familiar text in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And 2 Samuel 7, 16, it speaks about the one whose kingdom will endure forever. And the same Lord who came the first time and humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of death, is the same Lord that will come back and receive his kingdom. 
In the Revelation 11 and verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Christ will reign forever, and we look forward to that day. So where does that leave us today? Where does that leave us today? You know, those who know that this change is coming, we we know it's going to come. We know that the Lord is going to come back, and he's going to rule over the entire globe. And we know that we belong to him, that we're actually part of his kingdom. We're citizens of that future kingdom. So does that mean that we can kind of throw off all earthly restraints because we know that the king is soon to come and he's in charge anyway? You know, do we inform the world around us that, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a king's kid, you know, and you don't, you don't tell me what to do. I, I'm in charge down here. Is that what we do? Do we flaunt the freedom that we have in, in Christ and reject any earthly restrictions? Do we all move to Texas and declare independence from the rest of the nation? I mean, what, what do we do? What do we do? We're, we're all aliens and strangers. Should we say we're just not bothered with the laws of the land anymore? And that's where 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 comes into the picture. And uh, for those of you who are coming to the conclusion that I won't get through all of this today, you would be right. <laughs> you would be right. So that's a heads up for our, our music guys that... Uh, often try to keep up with where I am. I'm here for another week, guys, so just want to let you know. But uh, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17 is part of the instruction manual for the heavenly pilgrim who's just passing through. And even though we're aliens and, and strangers and heavenly pilgrims, we're still instructed to submit ourselves to every human institution. That's the, the main command back in the 1 Peter chapter 2, Uh, Verses 13 and 17 through 17. That's the main command of that text. Submit yourselves to every human institution. And there are three reasons for this that we'll examine from this text. Number one, we're to submit for the Lord's sake. We're to submit for our own sake. And we're to submit for the world's sake. And we'll see that laid out as we walk through the text. But first, let's understand what this command is asking for. That word, uh, submit, is from the Greek word hupotasso. And it's a, a word that's a, a compound word. It's from two separate Greek words, uh, hupa, uh, which means below or under, and tasso, uh, which is from a word that means to order, to station, to, to place in rank. And it's essentially a word that means to fall in line, fall in rank, to, to fall in order. It was a, a word that was frequently used in secular Greek for political and military subjection. And uh, for those of you who've Served in the, the armed, served in the armed forces, you know what that looks like. You know, I had, a, I had a coworker who told me a story about his, his time in the military where a superior officer consistently gave him the responsibility to clean the latrines. And uh, one day he just got tired of it. It's like, you know, he kind of muttered under his breath and like the superior officer came to him and said, hey, it's, it's time, to, time to clean the, the latrines. And he said, why, why do I always get to clean the retreats? Why, why am I always the one that has to do that job? And this officer let loose on him, you know, got into his face, you know, yelling at this guy. And I mean, spit is just flying out of his mouth as he's telling him, you know, you don't, you don't question me and what I tell you to do. And this guy like just had it and he hauled off and punched the officer. He uh, spent a number of weeks in military jail. And uh, when he was finally let out, of military prison, he was assigned to the same officer, and the first, first words out of his mouth is, it's time to clean the latrines. <laughs> it's time to clean the latrines. It's all about keeping rank. 
staying in order. You know, you may fight with another officer of the same rank, but you don't break rank. You don't fight with somebody over your rank. And that's the idea of hupotasso. Stay in line. Don't break rank. There's an order that has to be observed. And we're called to submit to every human institution. The Greek literally says every human creature, but the, the context makes it clear that we're referring to those who are in authority, which is why our English texts speak about human institutions. It's authority that we're submitting to. It's not that we submit to every person, but we submit to those who have rank. We salute the rank, not necessarily the man, right? But speaking about these men as created or creatures is significant because it also acknowledges that there is a creator that every man is responsible to. That even though they may be over you, they're still a creature. They're nothing more than a creature, somebody who's been created by God. Many of the emperors uh, were regarded as deity. There was actually a a cult of emperor worship where the emperor was regarded as as Lord and God. Uh, There was an emperor uh, by the name of Domitian uh, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD. And under Domitian, it was one of the, the worst persecutions of the church. And Domitian claimed for himself the title, Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And he persecuted those who would not revere him as Lord and God. Those who did not call him Lord, he persecuted them. And one of the common ways Christians were identified was by their refusal to call the emperor Lord. You don't call Caesar Curios? You're not calling him Lord? That, that's one of the ways that they identified who's a believer and who's not. Who's one of those Christ followers? Because those who follow Christ don't regard this man as Lord. And Peter identifies those who are even in positions above them as nothing more than mere men created by God. But they're still to be honored because of their rank. And the first reason that we're given to submit to human government is, number one, for the Lord's sake. Look at chapter uh, 2, verse 13 again. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Why do I submit to government? Why do I fallen rank, it's because the Lord tells me to do so. It's for the sake of the Lord. Later on in uh, verse 15, Peter says, for such is the will of God, which tells me that there's a, a rank higher than the government. It's not just we the people where the buck stops. It's because Christ is Lord. He's the one that tells me to follow human government. So government's not the ultimate authority. It's God who commands me to follow human government. He's the ultimate authority. Back in Romans chapter 13 and Verse 1, it says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And that's so important to acknowledge up front, because this idea of delegated authority will help us to navigate the question of civil obedience or disobedience. If we understand that authority is not ultimate, it's delegated. The authority that we have on this world is a delegated authority. That's important Tuck away in the back of your mind that idea of delegated authority. It's been given, granted. But we need to acknowledge that God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. And we're to give government submission because it's God's will. Flip over to Matthew chapter 22. Because I want you to to see this. Because this is the same thing that uh, Christ himself taught and even was an example of. Back in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we find the the Pharisees joining forces with the Herodians, which would have made everybody do a double take because the Pharisees and the Herodians never teamed up together. You know, the the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together would be like Obama campaigning for President Trump. That's what it would be like. 
everybody would be like, what, what in the world, like what planet am I on that Obama is campaigning for Trump? I mean, what, what happened here? You know, that, that's the kind of, you know, double take that everybody would have been, been doing. The Pharisees were known for their religious devotion. They were separated ones. They were known for their practice of the law. But the Herodians, on the other hand, were known for anything but their religious devotion. They were political opportunists. Herod wasn't this uh, great Jewish leader. His father was an Idumean uh, from the line of Esau, uh, the, the line that rejected the birthright, and his mother was an Arabian, so he wasn't Jewish. He couldn't claim to be the Jewish king, but he did anyway. And his son, Herod Antipas, is the same Herod who took his brother's wife and John the Baptist confronted him about it and was beheaded as a result. And the Herodians were committed to that kind of leadership. That's who the Herodians were committed to, the political party of Herod and his line. They weren't interested in a Jewish kingdom, a Jewish Messiah, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And because the Pharisees and the Herodians were both enemies of Christ, they decided to join forces to try to take Christ down. Look at uh, Matthew 22, starting at verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said, speaking about Christ. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher! You know, just so full of it, right? Teacher, we know that you are truthful. Teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, any, any just kind of laying on, laying it on thick. You know, oh, Jesus, you're just, you're just such an honest guy. You, you just say, say what's on your mind. It doesn't matter who you're in front of. You're just going to let them have it, Jesus. I, I know who you are. You're the teacher, the truthful teacher, the way of God in truth, 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 truth. We just know you're just going to say it. Just, just speak it like it is. You're just going to say it like it is, Jesus. So tell us then, verse 17, what do you think? Is it lawful, for, lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Go ahead, tell us the answer. Truth, truth. You know, give us the truth now. And what the Pharisees think they've done is they've set Jesus up for this perfect trap. Because uh, the Jewish people underneath Rome were under a severe persecution and they were seeking relief. I mean, they had taxes all over the place. You know, the Roman government reminded them that you're not in charge of you. They had taxes everywhere they looked. There was a ground tax for the land that they lived on. There was an income tax for everything that came into their homes. There was a toll tax. So if they moved around with goods, they were taxed for that as well. And then there was a, a poll tax. What's the poll tax? That's a tax just because you're breathing. We're just going to tax you because you're alive. If you're anywhere between 16 and 64, you pay a poll tax. Everybody gets taxed just to remind you of who's in charge. So the, the Jewish people were, were burdened by this. In addition to that, the coin that they had to use to pay for the poll tax had Roman, the Roman Caesar's face on it. So it's like they're, they're carrying around a little idol in their pockets because it's got the inscription and the, the image of the Caesar who calls himself what? He calls himself Lord. So here I am with this coin in my pocket that says Caesar is Lord with his image on it and I'm supposed to walk around with this? Like it, 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 was, in a, it was an affront to the Jewish people. They hated the poll tax. They hated it. And Jesus is asked the question about the poll tax. Hey, what, what do you think about that poll tax? You know, that, that tax that everybody hates so much? What do you think about that one? And, and knowing that the Jewish people would have been all over him if he said, yeah, we need to, to pay the, the tax. 
And then on the other side, if Jesus says, no, we, we don't need to pay that tax, who's on the other side? The Herodians, the people who are committed to the political power. So, so now it's like the, the setup. It's the setup. You know, we've got everybody in place. We've got the people here who are listening. We've got the Herodians here who are listening. And Jesus, we just know you're just going to give it to us. Just tell us the truth. What do you think about the text? Either way, they thought that Jesus was doomed. If he acknowledges the text, if he doesn't acknowledge the text. But Jesus is too skilled for that, right? Verse 18, Jesus perceived their malice, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said to him, Caesar's? Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed. (laughs) And leaving him, they went away. It's like, tell between their legs, I'm not talking to Jesus anymore. You know, you guys go for it if you want, but I'm done being embarrassed. Jesus acknowledged that it was right to pay the tax to Caesar. Because it's like, like, you want to walk around with this in your pocket? Just give it back to him. Like it's his anyway. What What are you doing with it? You know, if you hate it so much, just give it to him. And it's right for him to collect the taxes. It belongs to him. Just let it go. Pay, pay the tax. You know, give to Caesar what belongs to him. You know, it belongs to him. I heard, heard a story about a, a man who was convicted because he was withholding his taxes from the IRS. And he wrote the IRS a letter, you know, just saying that, you know, I, I couldn't sleep because of the money that I knew I owed the IRS and in close, you'll find a check for $150. I just, I just couldn't sleep because I'm holding on to this money. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> There's a delegated authority that government has, and part of that delegated authority is you pay them their taxes, right? Don't, don't withhold the, the taxes. So Jesus is recognizing that, yeah, they, they have an authority. They have an authority. And Jesus recognizes that they have an authority, but he also recognizes in that same statement that God has a supreme authority. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Yes, Caesar has a delegated authority, but guess who has ultimate authority? God does. Give to Caesar the little little coin with his inscription on it, with his image on it. You you give that to him. It's got his image on it. You give it to him. But guess whose image you're in? Guess whose image you're in? You're created in the image of God, right? Genesis chapter 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If Caesar's image belongs to him, who do you belong to? You belong to God. Give the coin to Caesar, but give yourself to God. You belong to God. Jesus acknowledged the delegated authority, but he also recognized the supreme authority. Why do we obey government? Because it's, it's God's will. God, it's God's will. Christians should be characterized by submission and obedience. We're not rebels. We're not revolutionaries. We're not rabble-rousers. We're respectful. And we submit to human government for the Lord's sake. Number two, we also submit for our own sake. Look at verse 13 back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 again. Verse 13 says, submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We submit for the Lord's sake, and we also submit for our sake. 
And Peter gives us an example of some of the, the ranks that existed in government and the purpose for which they existed, which is for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So if, if you want to avoid the punishment and receive the praise, what will you do? You'll do what's right. I mean, for your own sake, you should follow the government. We do what's right for the Lord's sake, and it also makes sense for us as well to submit to authority. The two authorities mentioned here, the emperor or the king was the highest authority that existed in Rome. And as we uh, noted, that office during this time was held by Nero, who was a wicked, egotistical maniac, and eventually he murdered both Peter and Paul. Nero murdered his own mother, murdered those who were his advisors, gave him advice, and he burned Rome and killed Christians. That's the kind of guy that Peter now says, submit to every human institution. Starting with the emperor. There was nothing honorable about Nero, nothing honorable about his life, but Peter commanded these scattered believers to honor him and to submit to him. And brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a great lesson for all of us to learn in that because some of us are under the impression that we only have to submit to those that we agree with or we voted for or those that we find respectable. You know, today we're even having discussions about, you know, does the government even have legitimate authority? I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to some of these discussions that have been happening, but the, the argument goes like this. You know, if this land was conquered and forcefully occupied, I mean, do we even have to acknowledge the government, you know, because they stole this land in the first place? But, but listen to this. The, the Romans invaded Jerusalem in 63 B.C. The Romans were invaders, Okay. They invaded Jerusalem, 63 BC. They profaned the temple. They entered the Holy of Holies. They put an end to the Jewish independence, but that did not change what God commanded for those who are now found underneath their rule. What did he tell them? Submit to the government. But the land is, is occupied. It's been stolen. You know, these guys came in. They took over. They conquered us. Submit to the government. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul, uh, Peter is saying here. But this is stolen land. They're despicable men. I have no respect for them. Scripture still calls on us to salute the rank. They would have no authority if it was not given to them by God. And as an example, in 1 Samuel 24, we find David, who was on the run from Saul. He was hiding in one of the caves at En Gedi. Actually, uh, Jennifer and I had an opportunity to be in Israel and, and visit the caves at En Gedi. The Lord delivered Saul into his hands. Uh, Saul comes into a cave seeking to relieve himself. He was using the latrine. <laughs> the text says, uh, actually literally says that he was covering his feet, uh, which is what happens when you stoop and your robe kind of hangs down. He, he was stooping and his robe fell to the floor and covered his feet. That's what the text literally says. He was covering his feet in this cave. And David secretly who was also in this cave, cut off the edge of his robe, just the, just the tip of it, just cut off a piece. Listen to what First uh, Samuel 24 says. It says, It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Which, which, by the way, if you're wondering, that has nothing to do with unqualified and false teachers in the church, okay? You know, I've, I've heard that used so many times, you know, touch, touch not the Lord's anointed. 
and do his prophets no harm. Don't, don't touch the Lord's, and don't, do not touch the Lord's man. Don't say anything about that man. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that used for T.D. Jakes and Cruffalo Dollar and Joel Osteen, Joyce, don't, don't touch them. Don't you say anything about them. Touch not the Lord's anointed. Scripture actually gives us an exhortation, Titus 1.9, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You call out those false teachers. You know, and when I cut off a piece of the president's jacket, then you can use this text and say, hey, touch not. Don't touch that man's jacket. You leave that jacket alone. But this is not a text about calling out unqualified men or women in ministry, okay? Saul was the anointed leader of Israel, anointed by Samuel for his office but he did not respect his office that he occupied. He was a man who was a maniac. He threw a spear at David to pin him to the wall, later threw a spear at his own son to pin him to the wall and take his life. Literally a madman. 1 Samuel 18, verse 10 says that an evil spirit came upon him. He was a maniac, but David respected his office because he knew that all authority came from God. And Saul had been anointed by God for the office as king. So his authority came from above, and David respected that. It's like, I, I shouldn't have even taken it upon myself to, to clip off a piece of your robe. That, that, that wasn't right. He feels convicted about what he did. Flip over to Acts chapter 23. We have a similar example. When uh, Paul was brought before the Jewish council to give an explanation for the disturbance that happened in the temple, and in Acts uh, chapter 23, we find out what happened when uh, Paul was trying to give a defense of, of what happened. I mean, he, he's hardly able to get the words out, like trying to explain what happened at the temple, but look what happens. Acts chapter 23, look at verse 1. It says, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. It's like, I, <laughs> I didn't even get the words out yet. I haven't even been able to give my defense. Strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystander says, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. You know what he was doing? He was respecting the rank. <laughs> respecting the rank. This, this man wasn't honorable, and actually what he said about him was true. <laughs> but he respected the rank. Salute the rank, not the man. Jewish high priest was recognized even by the Roman authorities to have a, a measure of authority. And Paul says, I respect that. I respect that, even though he's not respectable. But back to the point, back to 1 Peter 2. The kings, the governors who are under the authority of God have a responsibility, and it's even good for us to follow that authority. What, what are the governors and kings given the authority to do? What's, what's their responsibility? First Peter 2, look at verse 14. They're sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's, that's what their responsibility is. They have a responsibility to punish evil and praise righteous behavior. Punish evil behavior Praise righteous behavior. One of the primary responsibilities of the, the government is to be a deterrent for evil behavior 
and a promoter of righteous behavior. Again, Romans 13 says, for rulers are not a cause for fear of good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And they they didn't use the sword to kind of slap you on the wrist with, okay? The sword was an implement of death. We're talking about capital punishment. The government even has that kind of authority. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And this is why I say we submit even for our own sake. Why? Because it will generally go well for us if we show ourselves to be submissive and eager to do what's right. Down in 1 Peter 3 and verse 13, it says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You know, if you're seeking peace, pursuing it, who is likely to inflict harm on you? And then the example that we read earlier about David, it was evident that he wasn't seeking the harm of Saul. And he brought the evidence that he intended no harm to the king. In 1 Samuel 24, 9 through 11, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived that there was no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. And then dropping down to verse 16 in 1 Samuel 24, it says, when David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. David was seeking to do good for Saul even though he intended evil towards him. But here's the, the million-dollar question, okay? Here's the million-dollar question. In relationship to the government, okay? This is a question that you have to answer, all right? This, this, this will be helpful, and then we'll come back to it next week. The question is this, but who defines what's right? You follow me? We're to do right, right? The Bible says we're to do right. But who defines what's right? Do we individually get to decide what's right? Do the people collectively get to decide what's right? Does the government authoritatively get to decide what's right? Or does God sovereignly declare what's right? Because in Saul's mind, what could have been right for him was like, hey, David, just give up the throne and give it to my son, Jonathan. Like, that's what's right. That's what I want you to do. Just give up the throne, give it to... To Jonathan, I mean, that's what's right. But the Lord had already promised David that he would have the throne. To give up the throne to Saul's son, Jonathan, would be to do what is wrong. You follow me? And what could seem right to the government, denying the right to meet corporately, enforcing gender-free access to restrooms, could also contradict clear teachings from Scripture. Listen to this. The government has the role to praise what is right, but the government does not have the authority to determine what is right. The government is to praise what is right, but the government does not invent or determine for itself what's right. And I do praise God for a government that doesn't often create conflict for us as the the church, and 
I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have. But with or without those freedoms, we are bound by God to do what is right. And who defines that for us? God does. God defines what's right. We're bound by our conscience to do what is right for the Lord's sake, by the will of God, for the sake of conscience towards God. What does that look like? 1 Peter 2, 22. Looks like the example of Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What else does it look like? Look over at chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. This is what it looks like. It looks like a humble spirit. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What else does it look like? It looks like submitting to the government in good conscience when we can. And when we do suffer for the sake of righteousness, we entrust ourselves to the Lord. Look at chapter 3 and verse 13. It says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And in general, we will not be harmed if we're doing what's right. That, it, it's, it's basically true. In general, we're, we're, we won't be harmed if you're doing what's right. We know about our, our brother James Coates, again, spent 35 days in, in prison. But the way that he responded, even to those that arrested him, was with gentleness and respect. He responded even to those who arrested him with gentleness and respect that caused even some of the officers to take notice of the kind of life that he was living. In a recent interview, he mentioned that uh, the officers would often excuse their language when they were in his presence. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, pardon me. They excused their language. One officer offered him a pen and paper while he was behind bars. He said, hey, hey, Mr. Coates, would you like a, like a pen and a, and a pad? You want a pen and some paper? And this is what he said. I heard that the John Bunyan did some of his best writing in prison and gave James Coates a, a pen and some paper. For those of you who don't know, uh, John Bunyan is the author of Pilgrim's Progress and uh, was actually thrown in jail uh, because he was preaching without a license, without government permission to preach. John Bunyan was preaching anyway and was thrown into prison and could have left at any time if he said, I, I won't preach anymore. I'll, I'll just stop preaching. Could have left prison at any time, but he was bound by his conscience to do what was right. I can't stop preaching. This is what God has called me to do. He was bound to do what was right. Could have been released at any time. And today we have a, a testimony from his faithfulness, the Pilgrim's Progress, which is only second to the Bible in popularity. There's no book that's been sold more than Pilgrim's Progress and the Bible. He displayed a submissive attitude. And again, it will generally go well for us if we do what is right. But there are times when that won't happen. There are times when even though we're, we're doing what's right, that we'll still suffer. Chapter 3, verse 
13 again. It says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, I recognize that there will be times when you suffer even for doing what's right. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. We submit for the Lord's sake. We submit for our own sake. And number three, and uh, we'll finish this next week, but we submit for the world's sake. Look at verse 15. First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 15. It says, For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We submit for the world's sake. I know I, I titled this uh, sermon something like Silencing the Critics. I was talking to my wife. I said, uh, what do you think if I called this sermon, Shut Your Mouth? <laughs> she said, I, I think you already know what I'm going to say. You know, uh, Silencing the critics just you know, sounds better. But this is what he says, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. That's what verse 15 says. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Silence them. You know, those who slander Christians are not designated as wise and reasonable individuals who are totally neutral in their perspective on life. Those that, those that attack Christians and Christianity are designated as foolish men who speak ignorance. The attacks on Christians and Christianity don't amount to anything. Nothing of substance. They're, they're arguments from ignorance that don't address the substance of what Christians believe. You know, if my only argument against Christianity is, well, you know, I saw someone who called himself a Christian and uh, he did, you know, whatever this action might be. I saw this Christian, he said he's a Christian, and he did this. You haven't yet addressed the argument of Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? It's a foolish argument. It's an ad hominem argument. It's attacking the man and not the argument itself. It's a smokescreen. And a lot of people feel comfortable behind the smokescreen. You know, I don't want to believe in that Christianity because I saw this guy and he was doing this and the government said not to do that. So and I can't believe in your God. I can't believe in your Jesus because this guy was doing something that the government said not to do. You know, ha, 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 ha. You know, I'm not going to believe you. I can't believe Christianity because of what I saw a Christian do. Peter says it's a foolish argument. It's a foolish argument, but it's been repeated more often than I can count. So what does, what does Peter instruct believers to do? Shut their mouths. <laughs> Shut their mouths. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That word for silence, it was a word that was used for tying shut or muzzling the mouth of a vicious dog. You tie that mouth up. You shut that mouth. Muzzle them so they don't have anything to say. And how do you do that? Again, it's by doing what is right. And it's found all over in, in 1 Peter. Just, just to show you a couple examples. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, perform good deeds. Do good to them. Be kind to them. Be excellent when you're in their presence. Do the right thing. Chapter 2 and verse 14, it speaks about the praise of those who do right. In chapter 2 and verse 20, it says, When you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure. This finds favor with God. In chapter 3, verse 6, If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. In chapter 3, verse 11, He must turn away from evil and do good. 
Chapter 3, verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, again, good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And in chapter 4 and verse 19, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator, how? By doing what is right. It's, it's over and over and over again. Do what's right. Do what's good. Do what's kind. Don't malign anybody. Don't do evil to anybody. Seek peace. Pursue it. We leave, live in a world that's full of ignorant and foolish men, and they're looking for any loophole they can to escape Christianity, to escape the message of our God. And, and maybe you're here today, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've tried to ignore the message of Christianity and you've given up all kinds of arguments. You know, I don't, I don't believe in that Jesus because I saw this person do X, Y, and Z. You know, that, that's why I don't, I don't believe in, in your Jesus because I saw a Christian and he didn't wear a mask. I'm not going to believe in your Jesus. I, I'm not going to believe in your Jesus because I have a neighbor and he's a Christian and he hasn't been vaccinated yet. So I'm not going to believe in your Jesus. It's like, oh, wow. I, I mean... I can't get over that one. I mean, there's, there's just no way. Are you kidding me? Do you think that's an argument against Christianity? <laughs> you think that's it? You know, is a mask or a vaccine your litmus test for truth? It's an ignorant and foolish argument. Either for it, against it. It's not the test of truth. Scripture is the test of truth. The gospel is the test of truth. Jesus is the test of truth. And regardless of what position you take, the bottom line is, we're all going to die, right? Whether you put on a mask, triple mask, you know, quadruple mask, you're, you're still going to die. <laughs> Doesn't matter what vaccine you get. Take all of them, right? You're still going to die. <laughs> you're not going to escape death. Don't let people get around the truth of Christianity. It's not what it's about. You know, big deal, I'll, I'll, I'll put on a mask, whatever, you know. I'm around the person, I'll put on a mask. It's not a big deal. You know, so what? You know, don't, but listen to the message that I have to give you, right? You know, regarding the vaccine, I'm not going to speak about that, at least not today. <laughs> at least not today. There, there's, no, there's no command about that. That's, that's up to you and your, your conscience, you know, regarding that. You know, do that before the Lord, you know, in, in a clear conscience before God, right? I have a clear conscience before God. I did this with a clear conscience before God that I should take the vaccine. I didn't do this with a clear conscience before God that I shouldn't take the vaccine. That's, that's between you and the Lord. You have to be convinced in your own mind of what's right before the Lord because it's him that we serve, right? And government is not the ultimate authority. God is. God is. I ultimately have to stand before him. You're going to die. And you can't use, you know, any kind of, oh, I, us Christians were meeting or whatever, and that's going to be my excuse not to believe in your Jesus. You're still going to have to, believe, have to deal with my Jesus, okay? You're still going to have to deal with my Jesus. You're still going to have to stand before him on the last day and give an account to him. You are going to die. All of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. One day we'll have to stand before the judge and give an account for our lives, and you don't have the righteousness to present before him. You think God is going to let you into heaven because you had a mask? Because you've had a vaccine? You think you're getting in because of that? The only way we enter into heaven is that we've been vaccinated by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the blood of Jesus Christ was applied to my life. 
Because of his death, his righteousness, his resurrection, I believed and trusted in him. That's how I get in. That's how I get in. John eleven twenty six. 26, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That is, that is the message of Christianity. And my second question is for you believers. Are, are you giving people a reason to speak ignorantly? Are we rebellious? Are we revolutionaries? Are we, you know, causing up a ruckus? You know, I'm going to just want to get in. Every, every chance I can get, I want to get in an argument about the mass. Like, just leave it alone. <laughs> just leave it alone. Like, what should people know about you? I, I want you to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, the only, only thing that I want you to hear from me is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that is the central issue. We should be known for our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be known for sin. We shouldn't be known for deceit in our mouths. We shouldn't be known for reviling, returning evil for evil, threatening, insulting, but rather giving a blessing, seeking peace, pursuing it, turning away from evil, doing good. And we should be known for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that what people know about you? As, as you have opportunity to speak to people, you know, do you, do, you, do you give the good news of the vaccination? Or do you give the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified? I, I pray, I pray that we're focusing on what's most important. I pray that that's true of us. Let, let it be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together. Uh, Father, there's a lot more that we could say, and uh, looking forward to uh, continuing in uh, 1 Peter uh, next week as well. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember that you're the one who defines what's right, and ultimately we have to give an account to you. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, uh, help us, help us, Lord, to, uh, to, to walk before you, to live in a way that uh, would honor you. And uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to, to take texts like these seriously. Uh, Father, that we would seek to submit to, to government, that we would seek to, uh, uh, to honor those who are over us. Uh, Father, for our, for our own sake, for the sake of the world around us. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd also remind us that the command is to shut the mouths of those who attack Christianity by doing what's right, and they don't define what is right. You do. Help us to remember that, that you define for us what is right. And help us to follow that. Help us to live by that. Help us to trust in you and, and your word. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, you, uh, Lord, would uh, glorify yourself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we, I pray that you would receive all honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.